Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name's Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant at Boldside where I help leaders build epic team cultures. If you want to invest in your leadership and culture, DM me on LinkedIn and let's chat about how we can work together. I'm back for part two with my good mate, Shane Hatton. Shane, how are you? Shell, you have my number. If you wanted to hang out and chat, you could have just called anytime. You didn't have to use the podcast. Um, it feels like this is becoming a habit of us hanging out on this podcast, which you know, I'm okay with. Well, I have to let the listeners know, we did talk for about an hour before we started recording. <laughs> and then we always get sidetracked. For those of you who haven't listened to part one, go back and listen to part one of this episode. Shane gives some really good insight into how to step into a new leadership role and absolutely crush it and build your confidence. So on part two, we're answering a bunch of listener questions. We're going to go for a rapid fire, which for a verbal processor like me is a challenge. Are you a verbal processor, Shane? Look, I'm a thinker. I spend most of my time in my head, so probably less so. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, you might crush the rapid fire questions. All right, let's get into it. Here we go. Okay, Shane, first question. I've taken over a new team who are not in a very good place and very cynical of leadership from a previous bad manager. What can I do to build trust quickly? Oh, my concern with that question is the last part of that question, which is what can I do to tr- build trust quickly? And I'm, I'm really sorry for whoever wrote this question in terms of your experience of taking on a team that feels like you're in a really cynical place, because I know how hard that is when you're working really, really hard to change the way things are now, but there's this memory of how things have existed in the past. That's a really tough place to be stuck into. But what I would say is, is it's actually not something you can build quickly. It's something that you have to build consistently. And Shell, I know this is something you would see a lot. I think you just can't turn around an organization or a team overnight when it was one way yesterday and a different way today. You have to go back to the beginning and almost disassemble the existing wall that was there, take it out brick by brick, have conversations about it, have those really tough conversations, and then start putting it back in brick by brick, which means it's going to be a dismantling process and also a rebuilding process. That's been most of my experience with this. What about you? I'm really glad you said that because I didn't really that didn't really draw my attention of build trust quickly. I'm glad you've called that out because I think we want to build trust quickly. Like there's that desire of going, okay, I just want us to get over this hurdle and like be this, you know, super tight knit close team. But I'm glad you've said trust is, you know, trust is a bit of a long game and it's far easier to lose trust than to build trust. Yeah. I mean, you could spend your entire career trying to build it and then lose it in a moment, right? Yeah, which is an encouraging thought. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to sit there in that moment. Now, the, the good thing is, is so one of the, there was some research that was done around trust and they were looking at like what are the things that build trust? Because there's this tension. Often at times there is an expectation as a team member, this is what their research found, that trust is something that is given. So in terms of like when you get the role, you it comes with a level of trust. 
Whereas leaders, when they surveyed those, they said trust is something that needs to be earned. And so you're assuming the default position of you're untrusted until you've earned that trust. And it actually needs to be the other, the other way around. Like leaders need to assume that people have, like they need to be presumed trust unless your team members have given you reason not to. And so as a leader, they were looking at like, how do they then continue to build trust? And they were thinking, well, the natural go-to is like get really personal with people, share personal stories, talk about life outside of work. And it was the, it was the exact opposite. It was the least, the least effective way of building trust. The most effective ways were actually the, the really straightforward ways. Follow through on your commitments, do what you say. Uh, they were simple things like, yeah, if, if, you, if you had made a commitment to somebody, follow through on that commitment, walk the talk, basically all the things that we know are fundamentals to leadership, do those things consistently and you will build up trust with people. One of the things that I talk about in my leadership programs with teams is what breaks trust is the gap between what you promise and practice. So when there's a gap between what I promise to you, Shane, is that when there's an issue, I'm going to talk to you about it. But what I practice is I go and tell everyone else about the issue, but don't tell you. So that breaks trust instantly. Trust is gone because I told you something and then I practice something totally different. And I think we need to close the gap between what we promise and practice. So if one of our team promises, and you could almost do this as an exercise with your team, you could sit down and go, hey, what are we committing to one another? Mm-hmm. What, are, what are the commitments or promises we want to make? That might sound too much like, you know, a marriage ceremony, but like, what is the commitment? I'm saying as a team, we all agree that we are going to not gossip about each other, but we're going to communicate concerns to the person directly. Mm-hmm. And so then we need to identify if we've made these commitments, are there any gaps in what we're actually practicing? Oh, like, are we yes. actually practicing that stuff? Yeah, so, so true. To give you the, the rest of those, that list of the, these were the top ways people built trust according to the research. Number one, be dependable. Again, all that kind of thing. Like if I can rely on you, I can trust you. Number two, be honest. Number three, actively listen. Number four, give f- helpful feedback. Um, number five, model behaviors and lead by example. And number six, care about employees' well-being. So if you're thinking about how do I rebuild trust with our team, these are all the ways that you do it. It's, you know, when you have to give hard feedback to somebody and you do it in a really compassionate, empathetic way and you believe the best in that person, you're building trust with that person. When you go and undermine them behind their back, it's eroding trust. And so, yeah, little simple things that you can do. And it's not just eroding trust with the person that it's about. Mm, yes. It's eroding trust with the whole team because what happens is I don't talk to Shane about the issue I have with Shane. I go and talk to Joe. Joe then talks to Sandra who talks to Jared who talks to every other person and then it's trust with the whole team is dismantled. Yeah. So I think if, if we go back to the conversation about culture, how is culture shaped? So like we, in terms of the culture is shaped by what we celebrate and what we reward and recognize. And it's shaped by what we confront and what we challenge. Um, one of my favorite quotes is this quote, the culture of any organization is determined by the worst behavior that the leader is willing to tolerate. So if you've come into a team that where there's a lack of trust or there's a lot of cynical behaviors, as a leader, you've got to do two things really quickly. Number one, you've got to address any of those existing behaviors and show people that they're not okay. So rather than kind of just waiting and kind of seeing things out, you've got to jump on those behaviors really quickly and address those. And the other thing is you've got to celebrate the good behaviors that you want to see and reward and recognize them in a really public way so that everyone can see what is okay and what's not okay under this new kind of style of leadership. And in doing so, you tell people. I mean, you've probably been in a conversation where 
what you were just saying before, you go, oh, if this is what they're saying about that person who's not here, what are they saying about me when I'm not here? But if you as a leader step in and go, hey, actually, we don't do that on this team. We're not going to talk about this person when they're not around. That can immediately show people that behavior is not okay. And I'm, I'm much more inclined to trust that leader if they're calling that out as opposed to just letting it go along. Yeah, it's amazing what that does. Just that one simple statement of, hey, we don't do that. Yeah. And it's like a collective. It's a we. We all we all agreed. And if you've set those commitments as a team, it's like, hey, we all agreed to to do this. So I know sometimes it's hard when you've got an issue, but my challenge to you is you need to go and talk to that person directly. Yeah. And I'm not gonna hear about it until you've done that. Like you can be pretty direct with in these conversations. But I, I'd love to know, Shane, when you read out that list before being dependability, active listening, being honest, was there anything on there for you that's like your most important thing when it comes to trust? Like, cause I, I was listening going, that for me is like tick, tick, tick. If I don't have that, trust is, <laughs> trust is gone. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think for me, one of the things, and this, this comes from a conversation, I think you had early, early days in the podcast, you had Rowan Dredge on the podcast. He, he talks a lot about trust. And one of the things that I thought was really profound that he said about trust is that when trust is broken, you have to mend trust within the same context in which it was broken. Because um, often what will happen is you're in a, a team meeting and you cut someone down in a meeting very publicly and you go, oh, that was wrong. And then you go individually to that person to reconcile it and say sorry. So that person feels like the relationship's been resolved, but the team don't get that resolution. And as a result, you've broken trust with the team because they're like, hey, that person doesn't listen to our ideas. They don't care. They shut us down. And so one of the best things that you can do is go back to the context and go, hey, in our last meeting, I said something to Shell and it really undermined her. And I just wanted to say sorry to everyone that I did that. That's not how I want to operate as a leader. And I think that there is such a profound way of rebuilding team trust. The amazing thing about that example is if you think about trust like a jar, I've got this jar on my desk and by the leader undermining that person, it's reduced the water in the jar by half. But by you coming back and saying to the team, hey, I really stuffed that up. You're not just filling it up to where it was before. You're actually putting more trust into that. That What that does to the team is it doesn't just like negate the comment that you made. It builds trust to an even higher degree because when they see the leader come back and apologize and take that humble stance, because that's quite humbling to come yeah. back and even go back, oh, look, it was a week ago now, but it still matters enough for me to bring it up in this jam-packed agenda I think what the team leave with is even a greater level of trust for that leader. Yeah. I've never seen somebody be humble about stuffing it up and be perceived worse by the people around them. But I have seen people who go back and pretend it didn't happen be perceived as a lot worse or people who try to defend or get into that arrogant space where they're like, oh, yeah, but you didn't understand my intention and they look better as a result of doing that. I'll share a really quick story with you. It's probably one of my most humbling slash embarrassing moments. I've never shared this widely anywhere, but I remember I was at a conference once and there was someone who I, I really look up to and respect. And at the conference, we were in small groups mentoring people and they had been allocated to a group to mentor. I'd been allocated to a group to mentor. When we came back together, this person had like, it looked like they'd been crying and and I, I said to this person, I was like, oh, obviously your group went a lot better than mine did because, you know, everyone in their group was <laughs> crying. And I was trying to be funny. And 
I didn't realize that the reason why their whole group was crying was because one person in their group had shared a story about losing their child. And they had just come out of this very raw, honest and vulnerable conversation. And I blew it. And she looked at me with an awkward look and she kind of didn't understand. And then I went really deep on the joke. And I was like, oh, what I mean, I said, oh, do you have hay fever? Like, are you not crying? And like, I just was digging myself deeper in this hole. And I, and then I found out what had happened. I was so embarrassed and I felt so, so heavy for the rest of the day. And I just didn't know what to do. And every part of me would just be going, you know what, let's just leave. Let's never have that conversation again. We'll never bring it up. And that person probably wouldn't have thought about it. And I went, you know what, I went back and I pulled her aside at the end of the day and I said, hey, look, I said something earlier on and it was trying to be funny, but it was really insensitive because I didn't know the context and I didn't do it intentionally and I understand that. But regardless of the intention, it was really insensitive. I'm sorry. And her response was, you know what, I didn't think anything of it, but I really appreciate you saying that. And even though it wasn't something that she would have gone away and gone, that Shane guy's an idiot, it almost lifted the perspective rather than leaving it at neutral. And so I would say if you did, it did do something that's broken people's trust or it's not helpful, you don't have to sit there and go and pretend like you're the worst person ever, but you also shouldn't ignore it. Like just go back and and be humble, be honest. And in doing so, you can actually fill up that cup for people. Yeah, it is. It's a humbling process, but it's so funny because on the other side, the feeling that you get of lightness and of that sense of I'm really doing something that's aligned with my values like that values alignment thing. And you can feel when you need to do that because it it usually feels like this sense of incongruency of like how I showed up in that meeting or how I showed up in that conversation isn't congruent with my values. I'm unsettled by that. And then I think that's a good indicator that, hey, that's not done. Like you can go back and, and, and have a conversation and get that alignment with your values by going back. And I think it's really important for us to be aware and to notice you can almost feel it in your body. Mm. Don't you yeah. reckon? Like you get like your face goes red, you get like your heart rate increases and you think and you just start to go on this like cycle of, oh, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Like, you know, I yeah. think that's when you know you've done something outside of your values and you want to go back and, you know, show up in a different way. Yeah, you see it all the time in the public, right? If you think about big celebrities who who just like miss the mark on some things, if a celebrity comes out and goes, hey, I missed the mark on that and here's what I'm doing to change, Nine times out of 10, people are like, okay, and they move on. They move on so quick. But you watch the moment that person starts to defend, tries to justify, starts to kind of shut down people's concerns. You watch people can turn on someone so quickly, which is sad. But, I, you know, I think a little bit of humility goes a long way in building trust. And so for this person who's asking this question about my team, keep showing up humbly every day recognize when you get it wrong, celebrate when you get it right, just keep doing it consistently. And I promise you, you'll be a much better in a much better place with your team in building trust. Also, how good are we at rapid fire? (laughs) Wait, I don't think I understand the concept of rapid fire. We should probably articulate what we meant by that. (laughs) We're like, yeah, let's, so before we started recording, we're like, we'll we'll do rapid fire. This will be a really quick episode. And then lol, we're one question in, but you know what? I do like going deep on this stuff. I think it's really important to kind of articulate why this stuff matters. And trust, if you're a new leader, trust is your number one objective. You do nothing else but build trust. You're on the track to becoming a great leader. Like this is number one. Yeah, Okay. absolutely. Next question. I'm struggling with managing an underperforming team member and I would love to hear your strategies. I was looking through podcast episodes and haven't seen anything on this yet. Just an idea. 
Yeah. So in HR, obviously one of the big things we deal with is underperformance and how do you help people perform? I've been on a journey with this, Shane, of really understanding what causes underperformance. And there's obviously a range of things, but one of the biggest things that I see that cause underperformance on teams is when you are working in a role that doesn't align with your strengths. So I think as a leader, we often go straight to task. So we look at, okay, this person hasn't performed. Well, I need to go and set the objectives and key results and make them a lot clearer so that they know exactly what they need to do by when. And then I need to have that difficult conversation when they don't deliver next time. (laughs) And it's like very, it's quite punitive. Mm. We absolutely need to have clear objectives and key results. Like I'm a big fan of OKRs. If you want to know more about that, we'll put a link in the show notes at Lassie and have some great content on how to create objectives and key results. But what I want to say to this person who's asked this question is before you jump in and go to task mode, I want you to think about, do you know that person's strengths? Like, do you know what they're good at? Do you know how aligned their role is to their strengths? And do you know what motivates them? Because often the idea of strengths and motivation are quite linked. So I want you to dig into some of that first. You can do that in a range of ways. You can do some coaching conversations to dig out what are their strengths. You can get Sort Your Career Out, which is a great book (laughs) by yours truly. And there's some really good tools in there about (laughs) – did you like that plug, I liked it. That's a good plug. (laughs) Uh, There's some activities to help you understand strengths. But – that is where I'd begin and I would get an understanding of what are they struggling with? What are the things that they're finding roadblocks? Are they procrastinating because they actually don't have the skills in that particular area? And if so, what would focus development look like? So that's where I want you to go first. Like that's a really, I think, a really optimistic way of dealing with these problems rather than us going, oh, we need to put them on a performance improvement plan straight away, which is very, it's that process in and of itself is very demotivating. It's very, it's really hard when someone gets on a performance improvement plan and it goes into that kind of negative mode of performance management. I think it's very hard to lift, see performance lift. So it's not impossible. And I've absolutely seen people go through the process and come out the other side and have a great outcome. But I just think there's lots of little steps we can take before we get to that space. But what's your take, Shane? I think that's great. I think I think that approach is a really nice way of, of not diving straight into just the negative side of work. Because I think once someone's doing some things that feels like they're underperforming, we jump straight to the negative conversation. And what you do is you bring it back to the strengths-based conversation, which I'm always an advocate for. I've probably got two things. The first thing I would say is, as just more of a quick tip, as a bit of a rapid fire, is is if you have an underperforming staff, try to catch them doing something right because your tendency in that underperforming is to look at all the things they're doing wrong and it can almost put blinders onto some of the good things that they're doing. And so I would say you have to proactively try a lot harder than normal to catch them doing something right. So that would be my first tip. The second thing is in a one-on-one conversation with this, and this continues on from the last conversation we were having about these one-on-one conversations as being really critical for new leaders, I would be walking through a few kind of key areas. And I'll give you six areas that I walk through in a one-on-one session that I think could help you to open up a really helpful conversation with the person. So number one is to check in with their person about their personal life. 
which is the ultimate question, how are things outside of work? If a person's underperforming in work, it doesn't necessarily mean it's just work related. Maybe there's something outside of work that's contributing to this. And it's worthwhile at least asking the question how things are going on and, and allows them to kind of create that space to be able to talk through, hey, right now I'm having these issues at this. So personal life is a big one. The second thing is kind of what I just said is to check in around the results that they are, they are achieving. So ask them what they believe is their biggest achievement since the last time you caught up with them. Because what they tell you is the biggest achievement will tell you what they've spent a lot of time and effort and energy working on. So it allows you then to do the next question, which is what's the priorities, which is what should they be working on or what do you believe are their top priorities? And it allows you to determine is there alignment between their feeling of pride and sense of achievement and the actual things that you want them to be working on? Because if there's a disconnect, you've got an expectation that they don't hold and we now need to have an expectation conversation. The next one I would say is look at what are the roadblocks? Like asking questions like what is getting in the way of you doing your job or how am I contributing potentially towards this underperformance? So what what might I be doing that's getting in the way? Am I a bottleneck that I haven't even considered? Have I not given them the resources they need to be able to get through this? Uh, And the last two, as I would say, is an input question, which is, is there anything that I could be doing to support you better? And that takes a lot of humility from a leader to say, you know what, maybe there are some things that I'm doing that's contributing to this underperformance. Uh, And the last one is a growth question around, okay, so what skills do you need that might be able to enable you to do your job better? Because maybe there's a skills gap. Maybe they just don't have the skills to do the things that you're asking them to do. And they're too embarrassed or ashamed to be able to let you know that they don't have the skills. So if you ask these questions and take them through those kind of topics, I reckon that's a really good way to open a good conversation. Yeah, I love that last one around the growth areas because I do think people feel like they can't openly say, hey, like you've asked me to do this particular, you've asked me to design this new campaign. I've never done that before. I actually have no idea what to do and I don't even know what you mean by the word campaign. You know? Like, <laughs> do you watch The Office? Do you, there's, <laughs> yes. a, there's an episode of The Office where Jim and Charles, the new manager who's come in, Charles goes, Jim, just give me a rundown by the afternoon. And he's like, sure thing. Um, uh, is that just a standard rundown template or is like, just, just whatever you do. And, and, and Jim spends the day sitting around his desk trying to develop a rundown and ends up faxing it to his dad because he has no idea what a rundown is, but doesn't ask the question. <laughs> Can I tell you when I went interviewed for this HR gig early in my career, they were like, what's your experience with internal communication campaigns? And I just had no idea what do they mean by internal communication campaigns? Like I was like really early in my HR career, I'm like, I don't even know what those words mean. And I just ended up saying, oh, could you just clarify when you say internal communications campaign, can you just clarify what you mean by that? And like, I think they felt like, oh, she knows exactly what we're talking about, but she just wants a bit more detail. Really? Meanwhile, I'm like, I have zero clue what they're talking about. Ended up getting the job. But like, I think sometimes we feel like when there's jargon or there's industry terminology and that we really don't understand, we don't feel like we can challenge it because we feel like it makes us look silly. But simply saying, hey, when you're asking me to do this particular project, can you clarify what does that look like? And I know Brene Brown's language is what does done look like? Mm-hmm. Like how do you simplify it down? So sometimes as leaders, we make assumptions thinking our people know what we mean when really it's very <laughs> unclear and there's all this industry jargon that makes things even more complex. So get to what does done look like? Paint yeah. done, that's her Love words. That. 
If you want to grow in your career, I just wanted to remind you about our book, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Glenn James and I have written this book to help you with any kind of career crisis, but also those things that you want, like getting a promotion, making more money, moving into a leadership role, or if it's time to quit your job. You can find our book wherever you get good books from, or you can listen on the audiobook, Sort Your Career Out and Make More Money. Now let's get back to the show. Okay, next question. How do you strike the balance between collaborative leadership and making the final call on something that the team are stuck on? Big question. I'm going to let you unpack it further. My, but my, <laughs> <laughs> my, my immediate response to that kind of a question is there's a couple of things. One is the first one that I read about in um, Tim Duggan's book called Killer Thinking, and he talks about hippos. And he said, it's the highest per- paid person's opinion. People will tend to default to the hippos. They default to the highest paid person's opinion. And so as a leader, regardless of whether you believe it or not, regardless of whether you even get paid the most in the room, as a leader, people are going to default to your opinions. And so I would say you have to be extra cautious about sharing your opinions first because there's a good chance that people will just go with whatever you've said to do. So if you want to build a collaborative space, you've got to know when to share your ideas and when to withhold your ideas. And I would say your job as a, as a facilitator to ask better questions rather than to have better answers. And in doing so, bring out the best of the room. And then obviously there will be times where you kind of have to make a decision. And Michael Bungay-Stanier said this once in a, in a session that I was in with him. And he said, as a coach, it's not about having not having answers. You're allowed to have answers. He says, Just make sure that when you do give answers or you do give advice, that it's really good advice. And so I would say it's okay to make a decision and kind of put your advice forward. And usually the, the time where it's best to do that is when you can see something that other people can't. So maybe you have information that they don't. And with that information, they would be able to make a better decision. And sometimes you can't always share that information. And so you might just say, hey, I really value your perspective here. And there's some pieces of the puzzle that maybe you can't see. And the reason why I'm making the decision is because it's based on the additional information that I have that I can't share with you now. But I don't want you to think that your idea is not valid because I think it is, but it's just missing something. And this is why we're going to go this way. So it's it's allowing people to understand your decision-making process rather than just the outcome of the decision that was made. I love that about clarifying the decision-making process. For me, one of the strategies I would use with teams, and I would do this in a team meeting context where I would say, okay, we're on a timeline of this. We need to get to an outcome within the next week. So here's how we're going to run this. We're going to do an hour 
or it could be half an hour of design thinking where we go brainstorm, get all the divergent ideas on the table. And I would tell my team, I want more ideas. Like I want as many diverse, weird, out there, cool, crazy ideas on the table. More is better. And we get them. We actually, the group knows step one, brainstorm as many ideas. They don't have to be good. We just want a lot of them. And so then we get all that. That's really collaborative. It means that you get lots of different perspectives on the table. And then we go, okay, cool. Now we've, we've got a whole heap of them. Now it's time to converge. And so this is the design thinking process where we go divergent thinking first and then we converge. And so then as the leader of that team, my role is to help us converge based on other knowledge that maybe the group don't have because I sat in that exec meeting and I got to hear about the strategy or whatever. So then I help the group go, okay, well, how would we narrow down and make a decision based on the best possible outcome or the highest likelihood of return for this investment? And so once we converge those ideas, that's where we start to narrow down. And then ultimately I might take three of the options and go, okay, cool, we're landed on three out of 50 ideas originally. I'm going to go away, talk with this person, this person, and I'm going to come back to the group with an answer on that. Great. And so it's like a you take them through a process, but at the end of the day, you might still have the final call. So I don't think it's about either or. I think we have a collaborative brainstorming style and then you say, okay, well, here's my role now. Here's what I do next. Yeah, I think what you're doing is you're expressing what would typically be interpreted. So if, if you can express... Most people, when they give an idea, their issue is not that their idea wasn't executed. It's that they gave their idea and they don't know what happened to it. So I remember being with a team and they were like, you asked for all of our suggestions, but then I just never heard anything about that. And they said, oh yeah, but some of them we implemented, some of them we didn't implement. And they were like, well, we just didn't know. So I think what you're doing is is taking something which has potential room for interpretation, which is, hey, we gave you all these ideas and you didn't do anything with them. Or you, you gave us these ideas and then you didn't use them but at least allowing to kind of close that feedback feedback loop and say, hey, what I'm going to do is going to get the, the three best and I'm going to take those, I'm going to make a decision from those. And I think that's really, really clear. So let's move to the next question. This is a good one, Shane. How do I help a team member who doesn't believe they need help? Ouch. Can I give you the context? Because this was a LinkedIn message and the person sent me quite a bit of detail around this. The situation is that it's a long-term team member who's got some significant blind spots and skills gaps, but they just refuse to own them and recognise them. And so this person's now like kind of loggerheads with them. Um, I, I honestly, I don't envy this person at all. Having to, to sit in that space when, the reason why is because I've been on the other side of that and I know how hard it can be when you've got something that is a blind spot for you to acknowledge that it exists and so I think like empathy is always a really good starting point is that it's hard because I th- like, I've been on the other side of that when I've had a blind spot and I'm not really sure, you know, for someone else to bring that up for me, it's really challenging. One of the things that I think you have to do is you have to find a way to hold up a mirror and it's going to look different for everybody. But if a person can't see their blind spots, you've got to find ways to be able to highlight those. So maybe it's about, you know, for example, someone's got a project report they need to put in and you're getting, you know, three other team members reports, which are really solid in particular areas and one person's, which is subpar. You need to take the time and to demonstrate between the two to go, hey, this is what I expect, but this is what we're actually getting. And can you see and ask questions about the differences between that? And in doing so, you kind of can hold up this mirror for it. I think one of the hardest things when addressing 
team members that don't feel like they need feedback is we don't have really concrete examples. We go, I don't like the way that you did that, or I'm not sure about that. And they're often so ambiguous that a person goes, I don't really, I can't really make sense of it. So you need to find really concrete ways of, of demonstrating those skills gaps or those those expectation gaps so that it almost puts up a mirror for that person that they're talking to. I mean, what, what, what's some of the, your ways of tackling that? One of the things that I have been doing lately at my culture and leadership workshops with teams is going through the growth versus fixed mindset model, which is by Carol Dweck from her book Mindset, talked about it before. And her model is so helpful of just helping people to identify where they have a fixed mindset. And I would say that this person that you're dealing with has a fixed mindset. So they're not able to see their growth opportunities. And when you're not able to see your growth opportunities, it's kind of like when you go to therapy, but you don't want to be helped. It's like, well, the therapist can't help you if you don't want to be helped. Isn't that the, is that the saying? I, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I'm asking you because you, your background is in counselling, right? <laughs> I'm like, uh, maybe I should know the answer to that. <laughs> I'm always like, I was like, the expression is like, you can't, you can lead a horse to water. I was like, that's very different. <laughs> you can't make a drink. <laughs> it's kind of the same though. <laughs> it's like, you can't help the person that doesn't want to help themselves or you can't help someone change if they don't have any desire to change. That's kind of the whole, you know, the ADCAR model of change management. We need to build desire and awareness of the change that's needed. But if that person has no awareness and no desire, it's very difficult to do anything with that. So my first step is, okay, well, how do I create awareness? And the fixed versus growth mindset model is a really helpful tool that you could walk through with them and you could go, okay, I want you to look at this. As a team, we want to have a growth mindset because if we have a growth mindset, we perform better, we grow, we get better results. What areas of the fixed mindset model do you think you might be having some challenges with? Mm. And like do a process. Now that can be pretty confronting, but I just think sometimes we do have to have those confronting conversations to expose that person. Like you said, it's holding up the mirror one of the areas for this person would be receiving feedback. So under the fixed mindset area, when we're in a fixed mindset mode, when it comes to feedback, we get defensive or we externalize the problems to other people, we blame shift. And I would just point blank be saying, hey, look, here's what I'm observing. When I give you feedback, I've noticed that you seem to deflect and you said this thing the other day when we were in a feedback meeting where you mentioned no, that's not on me, that's on this person. What I'm noticing is that is you're externalizing the problem to someone else and I'm not seeing you take ownership. I'd love to see you take ownership over this because otherwise I don't think we can reach the outcome. Mm. You know, that's not the most flawless way of saying it, but I think what I'm trying to get at is we need to point to and those those tools like the fixed versus growth mindset tool is a really helpful way of letting someone understand where they are now versus where you need them to be and gives you language to help them understand, okay, cool, well, I need to move into the growth mindset mode. And if I don't do that, we need to paint the outcome. Mm. If they don't move into a growth mindset zone, what happens? Like what is the actual outcome of that? And I think there's lots of outcomes. Number one, that person doesn't grow. They don't progress in their career. Number two, they get overlooked for opportunities. Number three, they start to cause the team performance to drop. And what does that mean? Like, so we need to unpack the impact if that person doesn't change. 
Yeah. They need to know. And often we don't get to that, Shane. Like I feel like we struggle to talk about the impact of behaviour. Yeah. Because that's the pointy end of it. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because I think we both started with a bit of a softer approach to this, which was we need to kind of like hold the mirror up. We need to elevate their awareness. We need to help them to see that they need the help. And we're also, we're kind of landing it in, in, in another approach to it, which I think probably if a person is, has written this question, they've probably tried a lot of what we've already spoken about, which I think is nice that we're landing on this bit more of a direct approach. And I think there's two things to that, which is I use the free feedback framework, which is observation, impact and input, which is get a really clear, articulate behavior, observable behavior, demonstrate the impact of that behavior on you and on them, which you just talked about really nicely, and then seek their input on it and determine what they're, what they're going to do about it. So ask them. And if they, they genuinely can't see it, then I think it, it might be time to have that harder conversation where they go, is this actually the right person for our team? And a, and a phrase popped into my head that my wife uses all the time, which I think is so profound, so simple, so profound. She said, better a bad vacancy than a bad hire. And sometimes we're worried that if we lose someone from our team, they carry a lot of organizational knowledge and then we lose that person. We have this vacancy, a lot of work becomes harder. But if you've got someone in your team who's actually not helping your team be at its best and that person is kind of creating this atmosphere around them, which makes the, the team uh, experience worse and the culture worse for the people around them, chances are good you're going to lose good people in the process because you've let someone stay that probably should have gone and probably should have been moved on. And so that's probably the much harder approach than the maybe softer way we started. Yeah, but these are the biggest challenges you face in leadership is what do I do when this person won't change and how do I potentially move them on? Like that's tough. We're actually the worst at rapid fire. This is the longest rapid we, fire questions. Uh, we need to we need to have some feedback conversations about how we can improve our rapid fire. <laughs> okay, final question. This is a good one to end on because we've just done a heavy one and I want to end on end on a positive one, which is why it brings us to this question. <laughs> how do we give more positive feedback? Oh, yes. Let's that feels much like a lighter topic to finish the podcast on. Here's my phrase that I use with people. When it comes to giving positive feedback, be as specific and as articulate in your praise as you would be in your criticism. I think we're really articulate when it comes to criticizing or you know, giving hard, direct feedback. We're like, this is exactly what happened. This is the impact of that. That's what happened. And then we get to give recognition. We're like, good boy. Or like, you know, we're like, <laughs> we're like good job. <laughs> good boy, pat well done. On the head. Well done, little pat on the head. Good job, good girl, well done. And you're like, for what? What on earth did, like, was that... And so I would say, number one, be really, really specific. Tell them what they did. Like, because the question is always, if you want them to repeat a behavior, you reward a behavior. So whatever you reward gets repeated. So they need to know what's being rewarded. So when they said, hey, I'm going to celebrate this person in the meeting instead of me because they did the work and it looks like I'm taking the credit and they actually empower their team. You need to say to them, hey, I saw the way that you could have taken credit, but chose to acknowledge your team be really specific. And then you want to talk about the impact of that in a positive way. And by doing that, this is what that did to help create the culture that we want to build within our team, which is one that we celebrate the achievements of each other. And then make it meaningful, which is what did that mean to you as the leader? I mean, by doing that, I think it not only helped, it kind of created a, a good picture of what we want to see in recognition on our team, but personally, it was really meaningful to see your team member feel proud about their achievements. Uh, And the final thing is I would say, make it personal. 
which is find a way to give that thanks to that person that actually is most meaningful to them. So sometimes they're a words person, sometimes they're a gift person, sometimes they're you know a public recognition, some they're a private recognition. Find out what would make this really, really special to that person and try and go after doing that. And I think you do that, you can make praise feel much more meaningful and yeah, impactful for people. Shane, I love that so much. I've never thought about that. Positive feedback needs to be just as detailed as our constructive feedback because I think a lot of what I do it in my job is help leaders message constructive feedback. And like it could be a page long of really detailed constructive feedback, very specific. Mm. I've never once thought what would it look like if I put the exact same amount of effort into the yeah. positive feedback. The funny thing is, though, the return on positive feedback is far higher yeah. than on constructive feedback. Yes. Like, so, so if we put that much time into that positive feedback, what an impact that would have on performance and engagement. Like, yeah. I, I'm, just, that, I'm just thinking that through. And I got to say, this is exactly why all our listeners, any person listening who wants to get good at leadership, <laughs> that sounds really good. If you want to get good at leadership, you need to sign up to Shane's program, Remarkable Leaders, because I'm telling you, this is why I love your work so much, because you make me think about leadership in ways I've never thought about it before. And you are a master of making really complex things simple and practical and people can take away. It's going to change your career, your leadership if you do this program. So jump on. Shane is mortified at me saying this. I've got to say, he's just... <laughs> but. I have to say, it's just love your work. I love your work. Thank We're going to have Shane. the link in the show notes and that we just need to finish there because that is so solid. If you have positive feedback for this podcast, <laughs> submit it by giving us a five-star rating and a review and I bloody love you, all of our listeners. You're so amazing. Thank you so much for joining the show. Shane. Chill. Shane Michael Hatton, everyone. Thanks for having me back. I, I feel like if you'll have me back, I'll come back as many times as you want me to. So you just reach out anytime. This is always just such a highlight for me. You're the best. All right. Hey, thanks for hanging out. We'll chat soon. Bye. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we have a bunch of different podcasts on a variety of topics. So go and check out My Millennial Investor, My Millennial Money Professional, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Money and My Millennial Daily. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.